Let's open our Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. You all survived Irene, I see. You're here. Um, Any of you still without power? None of you without power. That's good. Thank thank God for that, huh? You know, um, I think, you know, it was bad, and I remember last... Sunday about this time, looking out the window and seeing the trees like bend in half, you know, and, and, but, but really, um, God really spared us, I think. You know, we don't realize how merciful God was to us because, you know, you think about, you know, some of these places like Katrina down south in New Orleans, I mean, years later, there's still some places that are completely devastated. Years later, and we're a week a one week later, and we're almost back to like normal almost, really. You know, and we were out of power for like four and a half days, and, and yeah, it was inconvenient, but really it wasn't like, like what it could have been. Like the house could have been wrecked, you know, I mean, a tree could have fallen on it. We could have been, you know, months and months repairing, rebuilding, and, and so, uh, you know, you think about the tornadoes that hit in different parts of our country uh, earlier. Uh, you know, we really, um, God was merciful to us. And, but, but it makes us think we should be, you know, uh, when these things happen in these other places, we should be prepared and, uh, to pray for them and maybe help if we can in some way, some form or another. I'm thinking of Irene, and, you know, Anthony and Irene, they left just in time. They left on Thursday, and then, uh, you know, this came on Sunday, and, you know, Irene left so that Irene could come, and she just, uh, but they're doing good. They're, they're back home, but Anthony's having trouble sleeping. We heard yesterday the jet lag. It's been about a week now, but the jet lag, he's still, like, not sleeping right, and, and he looked, actually, he looked terrible, to be honest with you. So uh, we pray for him. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are looking at the last really days of Jesus's life on earth before the resurrection, before the cross and the resurrection. We saw the last time we looked at Matthew that Jesus was arrested. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples. He was betrayed with a kiss by someone who was so close to him and yet so far away. He was there with him every day, saw him, heard him, spent time with him, and and yet his heart didn't belong to Jesus. He called Jesus teacher, but he didn't call him Lord. Interesting, when Jesus was being in the middle of all this, the the crowd was there to arrest him. And his disciples, they asked Jesus, what should we do? Should we get the swords out and start battling? They asked him that. But Peter did not wait for the answer. What did he do? He got his sword out immediately and starts swinging, and he he cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. We find that Jesus said, you know, uh, what are you doing? I didn't ask you to do that. I don't want you to do that. This is not the time to do that. He, he, in fact, he he, uh, healed the man, the man's ear, kind of cleaned up the mess, But it really makes me think, and and I really thought about this a lot in in terms of myself too, where we take matters into our own hands sometimes. We don't just wait and see what God's answer would be. We we ask him the question, and then we do what we want to do anyways. 
And that's not a very good way to operate, do you think? I think if we're going to ask him, if we're really serious about asking him about how to, how to go proceed, how, you know, how to react, how to live this life, well, we need to wait to see what he says. And let time, you know, take time to let God's plan unfold. A lot of times, too, we use fleshly weapons. You know what I mean by that? We jump out in the flesh, and, and, and maybe we don't have swords, but we, we get in people's faces, and we, get, we jump on them, and we, you know, yell and scream and do all these things. And, and, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we, though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Spiritual weapons, not just the weapons of the flesh, not carnal weapons. Now, Jesus, just before this arrest, he you know, had been in prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and he'd already settled the matter. He'd been praying, and, and he was submitted and surrendered to the Father's will. He would do whatever God said, and, and for him, it would be to drink that cup. It would be to go to the cross that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. At that point in time, all the disciples, it says, deserted him and fled. Not just Peter, all the disciples, they deserted him and fled. And we saw that Jesus was now there to face the cross completely and totally alone. This brings us now to where we pick it up today at the first trial. The first trial of Jesus. And I just, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around this, that Jesus was on trial. That he was on trial. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the one who came from heaven to earth, is on trial. We, you know, we, nowadays, you know, we have these trials and they're broadcast on the TV, the big trial of the century. How many of these big trials can you think of? Which one comes to mind? O.J. Simpson. What else? Any others? Pardon? I can't hear you. Anthony? Casey Anthony, yeah, okay. So did Anthony do something? No. <laughs> what other ones? I heard a few others. Big trials. We we look at and, and we and a lot of the times we kind of know that, you know, they really should be on trial. Doesn't always turn out the way that we think it should, though, right? But Jesus is on trial, and he's first on trial. Really, there's two stages, really, of, of the trial of Jesus. The first stage before the religious leaders, and then the second one before Pilate, the, the secular, uh, you know, authorities. So he's now here in verse 57 before the high priest. Look what it says there. Those who had arrested Jesus, they took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. This is like the religious leadership of the nation, the Sanhedrin, they call it, the high court of the Jews. John the uh, apostle tells us that he was also questioned by Annas, the previous high priest, was also called the high priest. He was questioned by him before being questioned by Caiaphas here. And this is now early Friday morning before daybreak. He's taken back into Jerusalem. 
Verse 58, but Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest, and he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. We see Peter in the middle of all this here, and, and it says there that he followed him at a distance. He goes right into the courtyard, and he's now sitting with the guards. A couple of things we want to note about that. One, and we talked a little bit about this before, where we talked about you know, Peter denying the Lord. At least he was following right? They all had deserted Jesus and fled. But at least Peter was here following now Jesus. He, he was at least there somewhere. But it says that he was following what? At a distance. So you say, well, he was following, but he was following at a distance. Is that, you know, what, what should we make of that? You know, uh, I don't personally believe it's a good idea to follow at a distance, I see people, and I've talked with people before, and, and I know that even in our own lives where we find ourselves, we're following Jesus, but we're following him at a distance. We're not close to him. We're not keeping up with him. We're kind of watching from a distance, and, and I don't think that's an effective way to live our Christian lives. We're either going to be in there all the way, right close to him, or we're going to be at a distance or not be there at all. It's not good to follow him at a distance. We see as well, he, that, and Mark tells us that he warmed himself at their fire, the, the guards and those sitting around, kind of warming himself at the enemy's fire, if you will. That's another thing that we do when we're at a distance. We, we tend to find our warmth and, our, and our, you know, the needs met by the things of, of the world, the things around us. Well, we sing that song, lead me to the cross, you know, deny myself, put, a, put my thing aside and get as close as I can to Jesus, as close as I possibly can in my life, as, as is humanly possible. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that each one of us, we're going to have visions every day of Jesus and that, but, but does it mean we don't even try? The Bible says, draw near to God, what? And he will draw near to you. If you and I make an effort to draw near to God, he will respond to that and draw near to us. Don't follow at a distance. It's not a good thing to do. We know what it, how it turned out in Peter's case. He, you know, he had those denials. We've already talked about that in detail. Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They were looking for false evidence. You wonder, don't you, uh, about justice. And you, you would hope that in a court of law, a court of any kind, that there would be justice. But there was no justice here. That Their minds were made up. They were looking for false evidence. Someone said this, that this wasn't a trial for justice. It was a, a trial to accomplish an evil purpose. There were apparent illegalities in this trial. For example, it was done at night. For example, there were no defense allowed. This trial was completely illegal. And any evidence against him had to be false. I think we'll see that more, especially when Pilate, when he stands before before Pilate. And Pilate repeatedly says, listen, I cannot find any reason to put him to death. 
Verse 60, it says, But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward, and they declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's an interesting verse. When you think about that, now that kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? When you read, when you read that, it kind of rings a bell. That's, that is, Jesus did say something like that, did he not? But is that what Jesus said? That's not really what Jesus said. This is what he said. I'll quote it to you from John chapter 2. He said, you will destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. It says, John tells us he was talking about his body, right? His body, his physical body. But they had made it to say that Jesus said, I'm going to destroy what? The temple, this building. It's a distortion. It's a changing of what Jesus really said. You know, they're, they're really, there's a lot of ways that people go off and, and twist the truth, but... Um, a couple of the main ones, and one is found in this passage we're looking at today about who Jesus really is. But secondly, about twisting what Jesus said and twisting the word of God to make it say what you or I or anybody else wants it to say rather than seeing what it says. Now, yes, you know, okay, what about the little issues of, you know, the different manuscripts and the different problems with translation? Yeah, there are some issues, but... But, uh, you know, the scholars have looked at those and, and you know, amazingly, when you look at this, uh, you know, of all the major doctrines and the truths and the, uh, of what the Bible declares to be true, there, there is no, there is no uh, discrepancies. You look at that. You can study that and you can see that. There are some minor things, but, but about the truth, the central truths of the, of the gospel and of the word of God, there is no discrepancy in there that, that what God says is true. There are a few verses that talk about this. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, Paul was talking to the elders in Ephesus, and he said this, even, he said this to the elders, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Even from your own midst, he said, guys will rise up, distort the truth so that they could have disciples follow after them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We don't use deception, and we don't distort the word of God. Once we, once we take this book and start changing things, and like making it fit the way I would like it to be, making it fit, you know, my preconceived ideas and notions, we're in trouble. As soon as we start to do that, we are in trouble. So we talk about, uh, you know, the inductive Bible study uh, method. And basically what that means is we look at what the Bible says, what the scriptures say, what those verses say, and what do they say. We look and see what it says, and we come up with a interpretation and application by looking at what it says rather than having our own application then we look at the scripture we try to find a scripture to back up what I want to say to you 
And sad but true, we could, we could do that. I could say, you know what, I want to hammer the people today with such and such. So I'm going to search the Bible and I'm going to find a verse that maybe says sort of what it, sort of what I want to say to you. And, then I'm, and maybe I'll just kind of, maybe just only use part of that verse and then I'll be able to hammer you really good by using part of a verse. Do you see what I'm saying? It's very dangerous, very dangerous. That's why we just want to go verse by verse and see what it says, keep it in context, use what the, the, you know, the, the tools that we have to study God's word together. Peter, who we've seen here already, we've talked about him already, Peter says, those, says this in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, speaking about Paul the apostle, he said that... that uh, he said, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Even Peter said, man, I, some of the stuff Paul writes, I have trouble understanding it. Now, Peter was there. I mean, he, yeah, he was a fisherman, but he was, no, he was no slouch. He was no dummy either. He says this. He says, ignorant and unstable people distort those things that that Paul was writing, as they, do the, to, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Ignorant and unstable people distort the scripture to their own destruction. A very dangerous thing. We need to read the word and, and keep it in its context, study it the way that it's been given to us. Verse 62, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus wasn't going to answer false accusations. Silence. And sometimes silence is the right thing to do, right? Silence speaks louder than words many times. In Isaiah 53, it says that... that he was oppressed, afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth against these false accusations. But look what it says in the last part of verse 63. It says, The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He put him under oath. This is really the game changer here. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. One commentator said this, that this was the crucial moment in the trial of Jesus. He might well, we might well say that all the universe held its breath as it waited for Jesus' answer. If Jesus said no... Then the bottom fell out of the trial. There was no possible charge against him. He only had to say no and walk out a free man. On the other hand, if he said yes and he signed his own death warrant, nothing more than a simple yes was needed to make the cross a complete and inescapable certainty. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Look at his answer there, verse 64 he said, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
He was under oath. He answered this question, and this is why the truth, he was, he was the way, the truth, and the life, and when it was put this way to him, he had no other option but to answer, yes, it is as you say, and talk about him being the Son of Man, him being the Christ, the Son of God. Those passages he's referring to, he's speaking about something out of Psalm 110, out of Daniel chapter 7, these prophecies speaking about Messiah who was to come. The Messiah. It's very interesting. You know, he is on trial here. They're sitting in a place of power and authority, or so they thought. But he says that one day he would come. The Life Application Bible Commentary says he would sit in that place of power and authority. One day he would judge, and they would have to answer to him. See, at this point in time, he's, being, he's on trial, and, and he's being asked to answer them. But one day, the day will come when every man, woman, and child will have to sit and answer to him. Every one of us will have to answer to him. He will return as well. Revelation chapter 1 says. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? What do you think? The, the high priest, he tore his clothes and, and, and tearing his clothes was kind of like a, a symbolic thing. It was a, a symbol of of outrage, really, that Jesus could answer in that way when he said, yes, it is as you say, blasphemy. Again, the Life Application uh, Bible Commentary says, blasphemy was the sin of claiming to be God or of attacking God's authority or majesty in any way. That Caiaphas tore his clothes to signify his outrage at the audacity of the claims of this mere teacher from Nazareth. For any human being, Jesus' words would have amounted to blasphemy. In Jesus' case, of course, the words and the claim was true. See, this is not the first time that Jesus was, uh, was accused of blasphemy. And in their minds, again, blasphemy was something that would be worthy of death. And, and in their minds, it's not just speaking bad about God, but, but when a person would claim to be God, that was blasphemy. You remember back in the Gospel of Mark, they said to him, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because he said that he could forgive sin. They said he's blaspheming. In John 5, it says the Jews... For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In John chapter 10, he says, we're not stoning you. The Jews said, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. See, this whole trial, what it all boils down to on the, on the spiritual and the religious side is, is who Jesus is. And, and this is, again, when they, 
when the high priest asks him, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, this answer, th- this is really why they, in the end they, they get so violent and they decide he must die. Why? Because he claims to be God. We can't miss that. Why do we need any more witnesses, it says. Verse 65. Look now, he says, you have heard the blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? And, and, and he says he's worthy of death, they answered. What a, you talk about being, you know, a, a, an unjust trial. But because of his answer, this is what happened. Was he worthy of death? Well, we know the rest of the story. We know all about who Jesus is, right? Because of what his word says, because of what the scriptures teach us. Was he worthy of death? No, not hardly. But look at that. Did you notice that? What verse that is? What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. You notice what verse that is? Matthew 26, 66. Notice that? I'm not all about the number thing, but it's kind of interesting, I thought. (laughs) Blasphemy. He's worthy of death, not hardly because he was and is the Son of God. Because what he said was true. But in their minds, they they couldn't accept it. They couldn't believe it. And look at their response there in verse 67 and 68. Then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? It says in Mark that they blindfolded him. One man said the court of justice ended in a frenzied display of hatred in which there were no there was no attempt to maintain even the superficialities of impartial justice this just kind of showed where they were at i mean they began to slap him and spit upon him beat him prophesy to us christ who hit you chapter 27 verse 1 jump ahead it says early in the morning all the chief priests and the elders of the, of the people, they came to the, to the decision to put Jesus to death. They realized what they were doing was completely wrong and illegal, so they waited till the morning and they waited till the, the sun came up and the, the light of day, and then they made their, their pronouncement, he's worthy of death. See, It really hinges on that for you and for me. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he just a man? Is he just a a good teacher? I don't know if you have any of you uh, read about Thomas Jefferson's uh, editing, quote unquote, of the Bible. Any of you are familiar with that? Some of you? He decided that, that, you know, he, he, that, so much of the stuff he didn't agree to, he didn't want to accept, so he kind of got his scissors out and began cutting out the things of the Bible, of the Gospels especially, about Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't believe that he was God the Son. He was just a man. And so he began to cut all that out, so you have the Bible of Thomas Jefferson. 
Not one that I recommend. But that's just symptomatic. That's just, you know, that just, you know, is a, an example of what mankind has done to get around the truth, to get away from the truth, to get away from fa uh, facing, coming face to face. I think someone mentioned it this morning, perhaps Jim, about coming face to face with the Almighty God and the claims of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle, you know, uh, he, he, he went around and he was persecuting the church and he was so angry. But he had an experience and he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And it says in Acts chapter 9 that, that um, at once, after he, you know, he, he was blind for a few days and, you know, the story, Ananias came and prayed for him and, and like, Things fell from his eyes, and he, he could see again. He, he ate some food. He got his strength back. But it says this, and listen carefully. He says, at once he, that is Paul or Saul, he was, as he was called at that time, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once, he said, this is the message. This is the point. If you, if you miss this point, you've missed it all. This is the most important thing. Jesus is the Son of God and being the Son of God, He's divine. He's God the Son. The Son, he, you know, they, they got so angry at Him, He said, you call God your Father. Why? Because that would make Him equal with God. It says in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes that, that Jesus, through the Spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. All the writers, it's interesting, when I started thinking about this and the writers, I looked for some verses about this where it talked about Jesus and the Son of God, the Gospel of Mark. It says, verse 1, he says, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John the Apostle, it says in 1 John 4, he says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And I like this too. It says in 1 John 5, 5, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you overcome the world? How do you make it in this life? By believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Not just some friend. Not just some little you know, teacher. Not some you know, guy that you get along with. But Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. John sums, really, sums it up here. <clears throat> In verses 30 and 31. But I'm, I might want to add that the passage before it, again, speaking about context, the passage, the context there is is uh, doubting Thomas, right? Thomas says, I won't believe, no way, until I see, until I touch, until I can know for sure. And, and, uh, and then Jesus says to him in verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what was Thomas's response? He said, my Lord and what? My God. He came to that place where he knew that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was God. 
Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded here. But these are written... And this, many believe, is the theme, the theme verse of the whole book of the Gospel of John. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The high priest said to him, you know, are you? Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He said, yes, it is as you say. He's saying that to you and to me today. And, and this, is, this is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not, the, not just that he died upon the cross, but who is it that died upon the cross? He was God the Son, and, and he was the perfect sacrifice. If he was just a man and he died upon a cross, what good would that do any of you or me? Wouldn't do us any good. He was just a man. He died on the cross. So what? But he was God the Son. He died upon the cross, the perfect living sacrifice to die for my sins, for your sins. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he was the Son of God. Face to face with his claims. Uh, I just want to close with this, these thoughts about what, what has been called the trilemma and uh, made popular, not... He didn't come up with it, but C.S. Lewis talks about it. He popularized it in his book the, the, uh, called Mere Christianity. The trilemma about, about who Jesus is. Was he a liar? Did he knowingly just say these things about himself? Was he a lunatic? He was just like insane to say these kinds of things. Or was he Lord and, and all that he said he was? Let me quote to you from C.S. Lewis. He says, I'm trying... Here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He says that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He says, it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Emmanuel, God with us. I found this website called whoisjesusreally.com. It's just a short thing, and I actually I, I made some copies of it for the, on the back table about the claims of Jesus. And they said if Jesus were a liar, why would he die for his claim when he could easily have avoided such a cruel death with a few choice words? And if, if he were a lunatic, how did he engage in intelligent debates with his opponents? Or handle the stress of his betrayal and crucifixion while continuing to show a deep love for his antagonist. Christ said he was Lord and God, and the, the evidence supports that claim. He claimed 
to live a sinless life. He claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to have shared the glory of God in heaven. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed to be a heavenly king. He claimed to be able to give everlasting life. He claimed that he would die and come back to life. And he claimed that he would return again to judge the world. Who is Jesus? Makes a difference, you know. What do you say? What do I say about that? Let's pray together, shall we?